on top of a hill overlooking Dublin city, surrounded by forest and shrouded in legend, lie the remains of a once grand hunting lodge. This site is known by all as the meeting place of the Hellfire Club, an infamous group of debaucherous Dublin gentlemen. The stories associated with the place are many. The group were supposed to have been occult adepts or even Satan worshippers. It was whispered that they sacrificed cats to their dark master and kept one seat always empty in case he showed up in person. And it is said that he did pay them a visit on at least one occasion when his traditional cloven hooves were spotted beneath the trousers of a mysterious visiting stranger. This is White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and from here at the Cabin in the Woods in Wild West Cork, I investigate stories of monsters, hauntings, UFOs and fringe beliefs. We're critical, not cynical here at the cabin, so join us to find out what we can about the truth behind the Hellfire Club legends and descend with us into the murky secrets of Dublin's past. This episode is one from the vaults. I've dug out an old episode from my previous podcast, Strange Ireland. It's scripted and in a slightly different style to my usual episodes these days, but I think you'll find it fun. As we get closer to October and Halloween, The forest floor is covered with brown leaves and the evenings are closing in, making it the perfect time for a tale of old-school occultism and devil worship. Joining me for this episode is a can of Wunderbar IPA from Rascal Brewing, located of course in Dublin itself. Wunderbar is an old favourite for me, one I remember from earlier days of the Irish craft beer explosion, and it still goes down well today. Grab yourself a beverage and get ready for this episode, The Hellfire Club. Lore of Dublin's infamous Hell House. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Well, folks, you are welcome to this episode, and you are welcome once again to the cabin. So, as I mentioned before the intro, this is a an episode from The Vaults. It's from my old Strange Ireland series. The reason I'm serving this one up is to cover me while I spend a day on a field trip, because I am, in fact, going to the Hellfire Club itself, hopefully, this weekend. So, by the time you hear this, I should be on my way. Uh, I'm going to do some recording, and the very next episode following this one should be whatever recordings I make on the day, and you can follow my adventures uh, on in search of the Hellfire Club itself uh, on the very next episode. So you can kind of think of this as part one of a two-parter. So yeah, road, tri- road trip episode coming up very soon. Just for a little personal backdrop here, I'm a sucker for anything that involves old-fashioned devil worship. I'm a huge Dennis Wheatley fan. Uh, He, of course, was a 20th century uh, English writer who sort of popularized the modern notion of uh, sort of aristocratic, decadent devil worship. And while the stories of the of the Hellfire Club are from an older generation, an older version of this story, I believe that some of the tropes that he would have been using might have come from stories like this. So in this episode we're going to delve into what we can find out about the true history behind it and focus on a bit of the legends as well. So I hope you've got a drink ready by your side. I'm reaching for the tape as we speak, so I hope you enjoy this one. As I said during the opener, There's been rather a lot of rubbish talked about the Hellfire Club over the years. 
And part of the problem is that they seem to have been the kind of chaps who actually enjoyed having a wild reputation, and they deliberately cultivated some of the porky pies that were told about them. They were rakes and dandies in the days when that meant being a gentleman of means who thumbed his nose at convention and instead reveled in all the things that simply weren't done by polite society. Anyway, before we get down to the grotty business of fact-checking, let's print the legend first, as they say in show business. Here are some of the things you'll read or hear about the Hellfire Club if you're reading about them just about anywhere. On top of Montpellier Hill, just outside Dublin City, in the Dublin Mountains, and clearly visible from many places in the city itself, is an ancient-looking, crumbling stone building. It was built in 1725 by one William Connolly, known to all as Speaker Connolly, as he was Speaker for the Irish House of Commons, and often thought to have been the richest man in Ireland in his day. In order to build his hunting lodge on Montpellier Hill, Connolly disassembled an ancient burial cairn, part of a passage grave that had existed on the summit, using part of its stone to create his fireplace. To some, this disruption of the ancient grave is the reason that the house became cursed. To others, it served as a source of pagan energy that future inhabitants of the house would tap into for their own nefarious purposes. When the roof of the building was damaged in a storm, there were dark whispers that the ancient powers had taken their revenge. But the really weird stuff was yet to come. After Connolly's death, Richard Parsons, the first Earl of Ross, bought the building. And after the disreputable club he founded got kicked out of their previous meeting place, the Eagle Tavern on Cork Hill near Dublin Castle, Parsons made the hunting lodge the main base of operations for his organisation. The group's name, of course, was the Hellfire Club. The Hellfire Club were sadists and libertines. Despite being well-to-do gentlemen, they wanted no truck with the stifling, morality-obsessed society that surrounded them, and instead hid themselves away on their hilltop retreat and indulged in drinking, gambling, carousing with ladies of the night, and devil worship. Their favourite drink was known as Scalfine, a mix of hot butter and whiskey. I'll stick to my ale, thanks lads. Especially as they were believed to toast this disgusting brew to the devil and then use it to set a cat on fire. It was whispered that Parsons was a black magic adept and that he would lead ceremonies while dressed as the devil, wearing horns and hooves. At their infamous drinking sessions, one chair was always kept empty in case the devil himself might show up. According to legend, he did show up on at least one occasion. For a handsome man once appeared at the clubhouse to play cards, but when Parsons dropped a card and leaned over to pick it up, he noticed that the gent had cloven hooves instead of feet. The man, or devil, promptly disappeared in a puff of smoke and brimstone. A similar story is told about Loftus Hall in County Wexford, another very famous haunted Irish location, but... That's a story for another day. There are, too, dark whispers of sacrifice. Occasionally, locals who wander too close to the building at night 
go missing. When a priest visits the house looking for one such missing person, he finds instead a room set up as though for a black mass, with a massive supernatural black cat prowling around the tables and altar. The cat takes its place at the empty chair at the head of the table, its ears taking on the appearance of devil horns. The priest uses holy water to destroy the beast in a burst of smoke and sulfur, but not before it has gouged huge claw marks into the face of the priest's assistant. In some versions of the story, the destruction of the devil cat caused the building to burn down, leaving it the gutted ruin it is today. However, the spectral black cat was still seen and heard at the nearby Killakee House restaurant further on down the hill. That's the legend. It's a tremendous story taking in a range of classic folkloric elements. But what's the truth? Well, actually, there's quite a bit. Like all the best legends, there's a kernel of fact right in there in the middle. And the true story really is pretty wild. But you knew that already, right? If it wasn't, we wouldn't be here. Okay, so the biggest difference between truth and legend here is that in real life, while the Hellfire Club and its motley crew of rich reprobates did exist, there's actually no hard evidence showing that they ever met at the hunting lodge on Montpelier Hill. Parsons definitely founded the club and they did meet at the Eagle Tavern. That's not in question. Parsons definitely built the lodge also, and while it seems natural that they might meet there, and it was inevitable that rumours would suggest as much, according to the book Blasphemers and Blackguards by David Ryan, the most in-depth and relatively sceptical take on the Hellfire story that I've found, it can't be said for certain that the lodge was actually their main hangout. In fact, stories linking the club and the lodge can't be traced back any further than the mid-19th century, at which time they seem to have become part of the general folklore of Dublin City. Parsons, as I'll discuss, was very much a larger-than-life character and a much-hated man about Dublin, so it's not surprising that stories about his antics stuck around much longer than the man himself, becoming more exaggerated and more lurid as the years went by. Parsons was born in Twickenham, but to an old family that had an Irish peerage. Though records are spotty, it is generally believed that he became the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Ireland, making him also an extremely high-ranking Freemason. The bizarre conspiracy beliefs that have grown up around Freemasonry over the years probably helped to provide Parsons with something of an aura of mystery. He was a man who liked his vices, and reportedly did all he could to impair his great fortune and later his health through wild living. He also claimed an interest in black magic. A famous story about him states that when he was on his deathbed, he received a letter from a local vicar condemning Parsons' life of gaming, drinking, rioting, turning day into night, blaspheming his maker, and in short, all manner of wickedness, and begging him to repent in his last moments. As a final anarchic prank, Parsons relabeled the letter and had it sent instead to the famously pious Archbishop of Dublin, who of course became furious with the vicar, and Parsons himself was safely dead by the time the two found out that they had been fooled. Now Parsons' grandson, William Parsons, the third Earl of Ross, 
was famous for building the massive telescope at Burr in 1839, which was the largest telescope in the world at the time. Astronomy and astrology, of course, both play an integral role in Satanism, and if one was of a conspiratorial nature, one could posit a connection between the grandfather's alleged occultism and the grandson's astronomical endeavours. One could even go further down the rabbit hole and presume a familial connection, as many have, to the mid-20th century scientist and mystic Jack Parsons, founder of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. This Parsons was infamous for leading cults and occult rituals, and for his friendship with the founder of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, during the 1950s. Because the JPL later went on to become an integral part of NASA, Jack Parsons has become a key figure in various conspiracy theories in which NASA is thought to be an evil and deceptive organisation that lies about everything from the moon landings to the colour of the sky on Mars and of course their own sinister and occult beginnings. Besides the torturous logic of conspiracy theorists, I can't find any evidence myself that Jack Parsons actually was a descendant of the Earls of Ross, but I couldn't resist mentioning that connection. Anyway, back to the 18th century. Now, very little first-hand evidence has survived about the nature of the Irish Hellfire Clubs, and much of what we must conjecture about them comes from information about their English counterparts. Geoffrey Ash provides a history of these clubs in his book The Hellfire Clubs, A History of Anti-Morality. When the first such group was formed by the Duke of Wharton in England, at a time in which London was full of gentlemen's clubs of all kinds, it was intended to be a satirical society set up to mock and shock polite society. Wharton was a wit and a joker, and though the club members claimed that the devil was the president of their organisation, amongst other blasphemous claims, I don't think this was really being done as any kind of serious statement, and in no way could they really truly be considered Satanists in the strict sense of the word. And I'll have none of your artistic statement Levian Satanist nonsense here either. Now they didn't call themselves the Hellfire Club, Instead, they used a variety of names based on the locations where they used to meet, such as the Order of Knights of West Wickham and the Monks of Medmenham. The name Hellfire Club was applied to them much later by outsiders. But with all the faux devil-worshipping image that they cultivated, it's easy to see why this happened. The most famous of the English Hellfire Clubs was led by one Francis Dashwood, a friend of Benjamin Franklin actually when he was on this side of the pond, he really upped the ante on the occult front by holding Hellfire Club ceremonies on Walpurgisnacht, the Central European Witches' Night on April 30th, though I've read that not many people actually showed up. He also moved the club to a former abbey that he had remodeled in a Gothic style, complete with huge statues of Egyptian gods and underground caverns decorated with pagan and overtly phallic imagery. It's clear that the club would eat and drink to excess at their meetings and indulge in sexual rites too, but due to their deliberate creation of a blasphemous image, it's perhaps inevitable that rumours begun to circulate that they were hosting black masses in the Abbey too. It didn't hurt that several of them left memoirs in which they boasted of such things. All of this gives us some idea as to what the Irish Hellfire Clubs might have been up to themselves. For the record... There were clubs in Limerick and Cork also. 
And if the Dublin group mostly met in taverns and not in Parsons Lodge, well, it's difficult to imagine their antics being quite as extravagant as their English contemporaries, but it does give us a point of reference. The club's motto was, and pardon my French here, Fais ce que tu voudras, meaning do as thou wilt, which was, of course, the sort of thing that Alistair Crowley and the aforementioned Anton LaVey would steal to form their own libertine worldviews in the years to come. It is known that the kind of men who attended such clubs in Ireland were known, to Dubliners at least, as books. That is to say, a particular type of upper-class gentleman, who nevertheless behaved in a most ungentlemanly way, and who had a particular affection for eccentricity and violence. According to Dave Walsh from Blather.net in his fantastic lecture, The Hellfire Club, Accidental Satanists, one of the club's leaders was Richard Chapel Whaley, who was known as Burn Chapel due to his habit of riding about the countryside on a weekend, setting fire to Catholic churches. The memoirs of his son, Buck Whaley, give this account of the burning of the hunting lodge during the Elder Whaley's stewardship. After an unfrocked clergyman had performed a black mass in one of the two upstairs rooms in Montpellier House, the ceremony ended in the usual drunken revelry. A footman picking his way through the sprawling bodies spilt some drink on Richard Whaley's coat. Whaley reacted by pouring brandy over the footman and setting him alight. The man fled downstairs, clutching at a tapestry hanging by the hall door, trying to douse the flames. Within minutes, the whole house was ablaze. Buck Whaley inherited a huge fortune from his debaucherous father and was one of the great characters of early Dublin. He spent his early years hopping from country to country, living the life of a rake, and spending a little time in jail in France too, for good measure. He was known around Dublin as Jerusalem Whaley, as he once rode from Dublin to Jerusalem and back in two years to win a bet of £15,000 from the Duke of Leinster. When he got back, he joked that he had shocked the pious rabbis of the Holy City by bouncing a ball against the Wailing Wall. To win another bet, he rode a horse out of the second floor window of his father's mansion, killing the horse but earning his money. Buck Whaley died at the ripe old age of 34, having retired to a house on the Isle of Man with his mistress. He built the house himself on top of imported Irish earth in order to win another bet that he couldn't live on Irish soil following his financial ruin and having fled from his Irish creditors. Before he died, he wrote his memoirs, which were, of course, so scandalous that his own family hid them immediately and managed to keep them under wraps for over 100 years. They were finally released in 1906. Though perhaps the most extreme example, Buck Whaley gives us some idea of what the idle rich of the Irish upper classes were up to in those tumultuous days, the kind of men who we know joined clubs such as the Hellfire. During his life, Buck Whaley himself led a resurgence of the Dublin Hellfire Club and managed to make it last for another 30 years, even after his own death. In his memoirs, Whaley himself is pretty blunt about the fact that the club held black masses, with club members dressing up as priests and monks in order to mock the church. So, in conclusion, are we to consider them Satanists, or just a bunch of young bucks making fun of the establishment? It's difficult to know, 
Satanism, after all, has been, throughout most of history, an accusation thrown at various despised minorities, and not really a title that was ever seriously self-applied by anybody. At least until the resurgence of interest in the occult that stems from the late 19th century and early 20th. For centuries, church and community authorities labelled groups they didn't like as being Satanists. Any touch of pagan or pre-Christian beliefs were also regarded as being Satanist, hence the association of the devil with goats, horns and hooves. Nobody ever outright declared themselves to be a Satanist before modern times, at least nowhere outside of a Massachusetts courtroom or an Inquisition torture chamber. And so we really have no canonical set of beliefs for Satanism, no core texts and no set of rules to tell us what a Satanist really is, does or believes. The elements popularly associated with Satanism actually come from the accusations made by those who feared and hunted so-called Satanists. And ironically, the more recent groups who actually do call themselves Satanists have somewhat reflexively taken all of this paraphernalia on board as part of their routine in the absence of any real actual historical tradition. So I guess to that extent, you could argue that the Hellfire Club were about as Satanist as anyone ever really has been. Exploring these clubs and the lives of their members gives us a window into a different world, the world of the rakes and the bucks, a class who were rich, idle and bored. Everything they seem to do is for shock value and attention in an effort to alleviate this boredom. Perhaps they too were not so different from Anton LaVey and 20th century art statement Satanism. There are a few other odd happenings associated with Montpelier Hill that I ought to mention. Firstly, there was an attempted murder that took place there during the summer of 2016, and one with all the details of a low-budget horror movie. Exact details are sketchy, and I don't want to name names, but it appears that three teenagers were camping in the woods near the spooky and reputedly haunted building when a man described by papers as a low-class Dublin criminal approached them during the night. Though they don't seem to have recognised the man or known him from any previous encounters, they allowed him to hang out with them for at least several hours before he stabbed one of the young men while they were in the woods, searching for logs for their campfire, and then he attacked the other two with a log. Thankfully, the injuries were light enough that all were released from hospital within a short period of time. But the overall experience must have been very unsettling, and rather smacks to me of an 80s VHS chiller. In fact, in the same year, a horror movie filmed at the Hellfire Woods was released. It's called Crone Wood and produced by a group called Fantastic Films. Now, Crone Wood itself is a real location, though it's a bit south of the Hellfire Woods in the Wicklow Mountains National Park. I haven't seen the film, though it does look interesting, with a definite folk horror vibe to it, very much the kind of thing I would be interested in. So when I do get a chance to see it, I'll be happy to talk about it on the podcast. As it happens, the film features spooky things happening to campers who wander into the wrong part of the woods. Also happening last year was a series of archaeological excavations of the ancient tomb that predates the building of the hunting lodge, with scientists finding evidence of megalithic art that is similar to that found at other famous sites such as Newgrange and County Meath. The art was noticed when the low autumn sun fell on a stone that had already long been in plain view, 
suddenly causing the archaeologists to finally notice the mysterious lines and grooves that had been carved into it long ago, almost lost to centuries of weathering. With all this interest in the site, local authorities have unveiled plans to open a large visitor centre near the hunting lodge. It's a pretty controversial development, with locals and people who are fond of the area upset that the beauty of the place will be destroyed. Finally, for any modern-day rakes or libertines, be aware that there are still societies calling themselves the Hellfire Clubs in major universities in Dublin, Cork and Limerick. According to Hush Whispers, they still carry on some of the debaucherous traditions of their forebearers. I suppose you just have to know who to ask. But membership is pretty exclusive. I won't say anything further about it. After all, that which is mysterious and secret will remain wondrous and strange. That's it for this evening. On your way out, take care to straighten your hat and shirt and hide those wine stains, lest any outsiders suspect that you have been carousing and merrymaking with lewd and ungentlemanly types while you were here. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.